Will you please open your Bibles to John chapter 14? And uh, if you're doing that also, um, if you notice there's new Bibles in the, in the pew seats in front of you, they're the ESV version, English Standard Version. I know many of you have had the, the NIV or the um, New King James Version. Those are great versions to have. But if you notice when I, when I teach out of the NIV, I always have to explain what it means. It's because it's more of a, it's, uh, e- the ESV, what is in there, is a, more of a literal translation. It's taking the original language and pulling it as, as directly as possible into our language. Whereas the NIV kind of gives license to kind of explain words by using more words than it should. I'm not saying it's wrong, it's, it's right, but this is a more accurate translation. If you're reading the NIV, you don't need to burn it, it's fine. Uh, but for the sake of our, our, our Bible study, it's, it's kind of like a new King James. It's, it's kind of one, one of those really reliable translations and that I don't need to tell you what everything means. And it cuts out a lot of things for me to do when I'm teaching. So it's a, it's a really good version, and I just encourage you to, um, to not only... Uh, read it, but if you, if you don't have one, take it. You can steal a Bible from this church. Isn't that awesome? Uh, so go ahead and, and take this Bible. It's not stealing because we're giving it. If you need a Bible, take it, right? We, we can put more in there, and that's what we want to do. If you know someone who needs a Bible, you can actually take one, put it under your arm, and walk out with your head lifted high, and go give it to that person. Amen? That's what they're for. Praise the Lord. We're in John 14. We're in the middle of what's called the Upper Room Discourse, okay, which takes place in Jerusalem, probably on a Thursday night, but it's the night before Jesus is to be crucified. And so in observance of the Feast of Passover, Jesus and his disciples are all gathered together in this large rented room, the Upper Room, uh, somewhere in Jerusalem. They're sharing what would be their last meal together in those final hours. The Apostle John, who's writing the book of John, he's in that room. He's in that room. He's the apostle that Jesus loved. He's leaning up against Jesus's uh, chest on kind of while they're eating. He's right next to him. He's able to hear everything that's going on. He's relaying what is going on in that, in these final hours of his life. And that's basically 13, uh, chapter 13 of John through chapter 17 are those final hours in that upper room uh, and also kind of on the way to Gethsemane there. But the main thrust that Jesus is communicating to his disciples in, these, in this section, 13 through 17, is that he is leaving them. That's what he wants them to know. I am leaving you. I'm going away. I am returning to the Father where I came from. And, and this is Jesus' farewell speech these, uh, these chapters of scripture to his disciples in those final moments. In John 13, 1, it says that Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. So he knows what's going on. Uh, a few verses later in verse 3, <coughs> excuse me, oh, run away now. <coughs> it says that Jesus knew he was going back to God. And if you skip ahead from there in verse 33 in John, in John 13, Jesus said to his disciples, little children, very lovingly, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. You cannot follow me. And again, a few verses later in verse 36, uh, in 37 of chapter 13, says to the disciples, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterwards. I'm leaving, you can't follow me. 
over and over and over. And this isn't something that Jesus just sprang on in the last minute. Hey guys, I'm bailing tomorrow. See you later. This is something he's been telling them over and over and over as he's been walking with them. Um, the synoptic gospels, which is Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, they all kind of tell the same story a little bit differently. But um, just examples out of Luke, of Jesus telling his disciples, hey, this is what's coming. Luke 9.22, Jesus tells his disciples, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. So this isn't the first time he's told them. Like he said, this is, this is going to happen. A few verses later in verse 44, it's some time later uh, in Luke 9, as the disciples, they're just marveling because Jesus has just uh, cast out a demon of someone. They're marveling. And Jesus quickly turns around to him in verse 44 and says, let the word, these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to, be, I'm going to die. So he says, let it sink into your ears. And then again, in Luke 18, 31 through 33, Jesus says to them, and taking the 12, he said to them, see, we're going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished, for he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, he'll be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon, and after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day, he will rise again. This Reality is just confounding the disciples because that moment has finally come about. They're on crucifixion eve. That's where they are. And so as they're in that upper room on that Thursday night before the crucifixion, Jesus first tells them that one of, his, one of them is going to betray them. So this is a, a very, it's a bummer of a situation. You can just imagine. One of you is going to betray me. And then Jesus identifies him as Judas, and John's the only one who can hear. The rest are kind of, they don't know what's going on. And as the evening progresses, <clears throat> and they're asking each other, is, is it I, and all that kind of stuff, uh, he's telling them that, that not only one of them is going to betray, but uh, one of them is going to deny them. And, and basically, that's Peter. Peter just says, hey, you know, I'm not going to die. I'll follow you wherever you're going to go. And Jesus goes, no. That's not going to happen. You're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows in the morning. And so he's telling them progressively over and over that where he's going, they cannot follow. He's going to die. And he's been telling them. And we know from Luke's gospel um, that it was hidden from them. They didn't understand that they would later. And all of this is just turning the world upside down. And again, Jesus says to, to uh, Peter says, kind of on behalf of the people, well, you know, hey, why can't I follow you now? I'll lay down my life for you. And Jesus, again, tells him, hey, you know, you're going to deny me. And so this is Jesus' last moments with his disciples. Pretty bummer, wouldn't you say? On their, their, their part, Jesus is, Jesus is identified Judas as the betrayer. Peter's going to deny him three times, and he's leaving them, and they can't follow. And their whole lives have been wrapped up in following Jesus. They've given everything to follow him. And now Jesus is telling them, you can't follow. And it says that they're filled with sorrow. They're filled with sorrow. That's what's in their hearts. They are saddened. They are overburdened with grief. And we know from Luke's account 
that the reason they didn't grasp everything that was going on or even that Jesus was explaining in front of them, it says in Luke 9.45, it says that the understanding was hidden from them. That God purposefully allowed their understanding to be dulled at that point because certain things needed to be fulfilled in prophecy. They needed to scatter. Judas needed to betray them. All these other things needed to happen. And then when the Holy Spirit came, he would illuminate them and give them understanding as to what would happen. But Jesus beforehand was telling them everything that would happen. So when that moment came, they would go, whoa, and their faith would not be shaken. And it's amazing. That's what he does with us in the Bible. He tells us what's going to happen before it happens so that when it happens, we know or we will know, that it's him. So much so that the critics of the Bible say, hey, it was written after the fact because there's no way that could have been true. And so all they thought that would happen at the beginning of the week as they entered Jerusalem with the crowds crying out to him and and singing Hosanna and putting down the palm branches and and they're right there and they're thinking they're going to be ushered in. He's going to take over Jerusalem. He's going to be a political leader. He's got power to give bread. He's got power to raise people from the dead. I mean, he's got power over evil spirits. This is going to be awesome. What they thought was going to happen, the exact opposite is happening. Jesus is going to die, and they are going to scatter. That's what's going on. Their plan was unraveling, and they're full of sorrow. And now with Judas out of the room, Judas is out of the room, right? We pick up in chapter 14, verse 1. As Jesus, loving his disciples to the end, begins to comfort and correct them, saying what? Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In the midst of all of this, this is what Jesus is saying. Jesus has a way of comforting his disciples and correcting them all in one sentence. Isn't that amazing? Do you find that about Jesus? He like, he'll always like, if they have some kind of moment of, of doubting, you figure he'd come in and just say, hey, it's going to be all right. Let's go, you know, and he just, you figure he'd coddle them, but he doesn't. He always kind of just goes straight to the heart and says, you guys lack faith. I find your lack of faith disturbing. That's, you know, he just comes in and, 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 and lets them know. At the same time, those same words are comforting. It's just amazing how he does that. Amen? It says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe God. Believe also in me. Jesus gives them two commands here. Notice. The first Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled, which literally means do not continue letting your hearts be troubled. Stop letting your hearts be troubled. That's what Jesus is communicating. It seems at first glance that Jesus is saying they're, they're there now. And there is a little bit of that to it. He is comforting them, but that's not the gist of it. He's saying, stop your unbelief and start believing. Your sorrow is because you do not believe. You believe in God, believe also in me. Trust what I am telling you. And that's the second thing he tells them. First, he says, don't let your hearts be troubled. That's the first command. Amen? And the second one is is don't let it continue because you believe in God or you 
you know, believe also in me. In other words, you have believed in the unseen God of the Old Testament. You believe the unseen God of the Old Testament. You haven't seen him, so to speak. Believe also in me. And Jesus is going to connect the dots for them in just a second that they are one. But he's saying, you can trust me just as you trust God. That's what he's saying. You see, the disciples' faith is wavering at this point, and Jesus has been communicating to them over and over that they need to trust him. And he does this by telling them what's going to happen before it's going to happen. Case in point, if you remember back the previous chapter in verse 19, and Judas has just betrayed Jesus, or Jesus is just revealing that Judas is going to betray him. He says, I'm telling you this now, before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Jesus even knew who would betray him. And he says, I'm telling you who it is in advance so that when you actually do remember, you'll remember and you'll believe me. Because a lot's gonna transpire between now and then. A lot of reasons for you to run away. A lot of reasons for you to scatter. A lot of reasons for all these things. But I want you to look back on this and know I knew what was going along all the time. You can trust me. Jesus says, stop being troubled. Just as you trust the unseen God, trust in me, God in the flesh. And if that isn't a verse for all of us this morning, today, I don't know what is. Faith over fear. Trust in Jesus, church. Amen? He is on the throne. It's interesting. As Jesus starts laying out the end of the age, he tells us what's going to happen before it happens. So what's the world going to look like? Say, hey, there's going to be wars. There's going to be rumors of wars. Nation will rise against nation. There's going to be a bunch of stuff going on. He says, that's the beginning of birth pains. That's the the pre-show. It's going to get worse. Telling you all this so that you know when it happens, I already told you what's going to happen. Trust me. And so anytime anything comes down our our pipe and our culture, we just need to look to what Jesus has already revealed about the end game. He's on the throne. We trust him. It might be difficult in the meantime, but he's, he's our Lord. He loves us. He cares for us. He tends. Anything that happens, anything he allows, anything in our lives, in our circumstance, I mean, he's a good shepherd, right? He's allowing. Trust him in the moment. Trust him in this. Amen? And this isn't an irresponsible faith, by the way. You know, trust Jesus, wash your hands. It's like, you know, like Marcus put in the bathrooms, uh, share the gospel, not your germs. You know, I think that's brilliant. But that's a verse for us. Trust in me, Jesus says. To choose to stop letting our hearts be troubled. How? By choosing to trust in what Jesus says will happen. And I think the gap is that we don't know what Jesus says will happen because we've got the wrong kind of news opened up all the time, myself included. Time to open the good news, church. Time to open the good news in your life. Open, click on that channel. Not the weird one with the cool hairdos and all that stuff. Get this one. The Word of God, right? Open up the Word of God and let it penetrate your hearts. And let that be the filter in which you see everything else going on around you. Amen? 
He says to them, beginning in verse 2, after he tells them, trust in me. You know, don't let your heart be troubled. You trust in God, trust in me. And then he says in verse 2, in the very same breath, in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. I'm leaving you, but I'm going to prepare a place for you and I'm going to come and get you so we will be together forever. As believers, we've heard these verses many times, often at funerals, because they're promises for us, amen? I use them all the time because it's truth. And Jesus tells them in the previous chapter, I'm going, you can't follow, but you will later, right? There's the promise, but you will later. And now Jesus is telling them that what, he tells them what he's going to be doing while he's gone. He says, I'm going away to prepare a place for you, Jesus tells them. I'm going to go prepare a place for you. This is not going to be a permanent separation. Jesus uses the imagery of a father's house. And I, I was over in Jordan in, in 2000, 2001, somewhere around there, the city of Jordan, uh, city of Jordan the, country of Jordan, right next to Israel. And one of the interesting things as I was driving around is you'd see all these half-built buildings everywhere. And, and part of the culture there is that a family, whoever was the patriarch or the family, they would have their house. And um, as the family grew, as people got married, you wouldn't just go off and go, hey, we're moving to Seattle, see you later. No, you'd kind of stay together as a family. And you'd add on. And so you'd, you'd all have this family. And so as, as more people kind of lived uh, and married and had their lives and all that stuff, you just start stacking houses and moving out and stuff. And so there'd be a compound, basically. They'd all live together. It's pretty neat. And this is the imagery that they have in their head. I go to a prayer, prayer place for you. And this is what would happen when a, when a, um, when a husband was, married, was marrying someone. He would go and prepare a house. He would go and say, hey, I'm going to get engaged to you, but I'm going to be gone for a little bit because I'm going to go prepare a place for you. So another imagery, another picture that Jesus is alluding to, that just as a, as a husband is going to, or a, a groom is going to go prepare a place for his bride, that's what he's doing for his church. He's going to prepare. And there's this picture, uh, you know, in the Jewish wedding where uh, she wouldn't see him for seven days, and then he would go grab her, and there'd be a festival, and they lead her all the way to the new house, and it's just this beautiful picture. I'm going to prepare a place for you that where I am, you may be with me, and I will be with you. We'll be together. That's the promise. I'm leaving, but it's for a purpose. I'm leaving to go prepare a place for you. I'm leaving with you in mind. And that promise is for us as well. Amen? While we have not seen our bridegroom, we will. He's got us in mind. He's going to come back and get us. And that promise of that beautiful place that he's preparing for us is just amazing. If you flip forward in your Bibles to Revelation 21, very end of your Bible, it speaks of this dwelling place. And just to give you a snapshot, I want to read just a few verses of Revelation 21. It says, Then I saw a new heaven. This is John, by the way, the Apostle John, caught up uh, on the Lord's day. He's being a, given a, a vision of heaven. And of what would come, basically. And then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. 
And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And so there's a city, and John's saying, it's so beautiful, it's like a bride coming down the aisle, prepared for her husband. And it's this amazing imagery, because the church is not only a, a bride, but it's also described as a building. We're a building built together. And so there's this imagery that kind of keeps fluctuating back and forth between a, a bride and a building. And the building is where Christ dwells. And a husband and Christ, uh, a husband and a wife are one. They are one with each other. They dwell. And there's the picture of the father and the son. We are one. Uh, I in him and he in me. And there's this picture of we will dwell with God to where we will be together forever in one another. And it's, just this, it's, it's kind of like it's a three-dimensional imagery that God's trying to give to a two-dimensional people. He's trying to explain heavenly things in earthly terms. And we just can't quite get it, so he's just given us this, it's like a bride coming down from heaven prepared. He's just saying it's glorious. Adorned for her husband, and I heard a loud voice, verse 3, from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Verse 4, the verse we're all waiting for, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Keep reading for homework. Enjoy it. It's yours in Christ Jesus. He goes to prepare a place for you. And there is no sun, for the Son of God himself is the glory that lights the whole place up. There's no temple, for he's the temple. It's just amazing. You see, Jesus has been preparing a place for the people of God to dwell with God. I will come again, and I will take you to myself so that where I am, you may be also. These are Jesus' words to you this morning, his beloved church, his blood-bought bride. Let your heart, don't let him be shaken by anything. Put him fully on his promises. He will make good on them. He's going to come and get you, either by death or by a shout. And this second part of comforting promise to him, first he's going to prepare a place. Secondly, I want to come and get you so that where I am, you may be also. This is, this is what we're waiting for as believers this very moment, for the Lord Jesus to make good on his promise. We're waiting for Jesus to shout and call his church up to him in what is commonly called the rapture. I know different believers see this differently. This is where I stand on this, and I can still fellowship with you on it, either as long as you believe that Jesus is coming for his church, like he says, amen? He has not already come. He is coming, yet future. But 1 Corinthians 15, 50 through 55 gives us a window into this radical event where Paul says, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does perishable inherit the imperishable. 
The kingdom of God is imperishable. We are perishable. We're in the flesh. The two are irreconcilable. There needs to be a change. There needs to be a difference. There needs to be something to happen. Behold, verse 51, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep or die, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet for the trump will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed for this imperishable but for this excuse me for this perishable body must put on the imperishable and the mortal body must put on immortality and when the perishable puts on imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. So there's an event where believers in Christ who are living will be transformed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, Jesus says. And I believe that's the same time that the righteous, perhaps the righteous of the New Testament, the Old Testament states, will be raised at that moment because we have a second verse. First Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18, gives us another angle on that event. It says, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. You see, believers were writing to Paul saying, hey, what happened to those people who believed who died? Jesus hasn't come back. Have you already come back? What's going on? They just had a lot of questions. Amen? That's why we have little question slot things in the back of your thing. We're working on them. It says, he says, I don't want you to be as those who grieve and others who don't have any hope. You have a hope, right? Verse 14, for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Wait a second, God is gonna come? Well, I thought Jesus was coming back. Yes. God's coming back. The son is coming back. And he's going to bring with them all who have fallen asleep, all who have died. For this we declare to you by word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. They're going to go first. And he explains, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of the archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. In other words, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Your body's in the ground. There's going to be a shout where you get your second body if you've already gone in to be with the Lord, and you will be with him, reanimated in your second body. And at that moment, those who are alive and remain on the earth will be translated, and you will meet the Lord together in your resurrected bodies. That's what's going on. So if you're wondering about all that space-time continuum, that's my best guess. But he says, he says, For the Lord himself will descend with heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of the archangel, and the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, who remain, will be caught up together with them in the clouds. Notice it's not a touchdown, it's a cloud. We're meeting the Lord in the clouds, not on the ground. The ground is the second coming of Jesus Christ where he enacts judgment. You are caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Jesus says back in 
in verse 3 of John 14, I will come again and I will take you to myself. And that taking is going to be a violent snatching away. It is going to be by force. Not in, in other words, it's going to be in a moment. He's going to shout and it'll be done. I want that version. Amen? I want the Lord to cry out in for us to go. Now, I realize everybody doesn't see it this way, and, and, and there's different ways of looking at it, and, and that good people who love the Lord see this differently. If you happen to see this differently, and it works out to where uh, you go through um, the um, tribulation, you know, and all that type of stuff, and we end up going through that, then okay, we still trust Jesus and we wait for him. Amen? We still trust him. He's still coming for us. But I believe the wrath that is poured out on the church is not reserved for his church. And that's where I stand on this. And I've gone back and forth on it a lot, by the way. But I'd love to chat with you on that. But listen to the hope. I'm gonna come and get you. And this is what every apostle was waiting for. They didn't sit there and go, oh, yeah, he's not coming. They expected him to come, and that is how he expects his church to live. That any moment the Lord could return. Better than Santa Claus. You know what I mean? Just, it's going to be in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, he will come back, and what are we doing? Live accordingly, and that's Jesus' teaching, right? In the New Testament. Therefore, encourage one of those words, and Jesus says back in John 3, I'm going to take you. Whether through death or rapture, we have a great and precious promise to be with the Lord. He will not leave us. And he hasn't left us alone. As Jesus, this is his thought. I'm leaving you. I'm going to prepare a place. I'm not going to leave you alone. I'm going to send a helper. And he's going to talk about the Holy Spirit. We're going to wait for the Holy Spirit next week. I know that sounds bad, but we're going to talk about, we're going to really get into the Holy Spirit, the promise of the Spirit next week. In verse 15. But what a glorious day that will be. Maranatha, amen? That word means come Lord quickly, right? Come Lord Jesus quickly, please. And Jesus says something striking to them after he says this to his disciples in verse four. And you know the way to where I'm going. You know the way to where I'm going. I'm going away to prepare a place for you. I'm going to the Father. You know the way, disciples. Stop being troubled. Start trusting. You know the way. And I love Thomas, speaking for all of us if we were there. Verse five, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus says to us, to him and to us, verse six, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You know the way. I'm right here in front of you, Thomas. How awesome is that? Jesus says three distinct things real quickly to Thomas, right? About himself, for each of us to latch on to here. The first is Jesus declares, I am the way. If you're keeping track, um, this is the sixth of the seventh I am statements of Jesus in the, in, in the book of John. We'll go through them when we get to the seventh, okay? But Jesus says, I am the way. What Jesus is saying is that he's the way to God. I'm the way to God. There is no other way. We'll, we'll figure that out. Secondly, Jesus declares to them, he's the truth. 
If you want to know the truth about God, it's found in the Son. It's found in Jesus Christ. He is the truth concerning the Father. If you want to know what God thinks about stuff, what he says about stuff, look to the Son. Amen? In the last times he's spoken by the prophets and various people, but in these last days he's spoken through his Son, Jesus Christ. And so thirdly, Jesus declares to them that he is life, right? Meaning he possesses the life of God, eternal life. And this is the theme of John. Back in John chapter 1, verse 14, very beginning, uh, John is dealing in all these imageries and pictures. We read, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. Jesus possesses the life of God. He is the one who gives eternal life. The Father has given him authority to give eternal life. And so we have the way, the truth, and the life. And then verse six, he says there, no one comes to the Father except through me. No one comes to the Father. No one comes to God, the one and only true God, except through the Son, Jesus Christ. If you deny the Son, you do not have the Father. If you have the Son, you have the Father. It's as clear as can be. You only get to the Father through the Son. There is no other way to God it's a very important church. He is the way. There isn't multiple paths to God. All roads do not lead to Rome. The way is narrow. It's exclusive. Jesus says all other religions, all other ways, all other paths, all other false ver- uh, modifications of, of true Christianity, they all aren't the way. There's only one way through him. That's it. And he proved it by his miracles, by his words, his works, everything he did. He rose from the dead. No one comes to the Father except through me. The world would have you believe that the individual has authority to dictate the way. That you need to find your way and that your way is the way. That's a lie. Your way is not the way. What you believe about the way, if it isn't his way, it's no way at all. We can go into the way situation, but he is the only way. And listen, church, the church understood this so much. Do you know what they were called? They weren't called Christians until Antioch, but you know what they were called by everybody around them? The way. They're called the way. You and I should be called, hey, that's the way over there. That's that sect of Christianity. Why? Because they proclaim that Jesus is the way. Acts 24, 14, Acts 19, 23, Acts 19, 9, Acts 9, 2. I said those backwards, but but maybe the same with us. Amen. I'm the way, the truth, life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And then after that declaration, he rebukes his disciples again. Verse seven, if you had known me, you would have known my Father also. If you'd been listening, guys, you would know without a doubt that I and the Father are one. That I am the way. There would be no need for you to doubt, no need for you to worry, no need for you to sorrow if you'd been listening. Verse, and he goes on, the end of verse seven, From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Check that out. And the word you here is plural, y'all, 
Anyone from somewhere other in here? Y'all? Y'all have seen him. This is it. This is awesome. You've seen the Father. You know him and you've seen him. Now, if you're sitting in that room, the only people there are Jesus and the disciples, right? Who's he talking about? Great question. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it's enough for us. Anyone else kind of have those kind of prayers going on? You, you need something from God. You need explanation. You say, hey, Lord, just, uh, you know, just do this for me and it'll be good enough. I love that. Give me an unmistakable, visible sign and I'll believe. Show us the Father. That'll be enough. Verse 9, and Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Church, it's so important that you understand that Jesus is God and that any variation from that is absolute the wide path. I and the Father are one. And there's so many ways in which they're one. One in nature, one in essence, one in power, one in knowledge, one in wisdom. Just keep going down all the attributes of God. This is what Colossians 2.9 says of the Son. For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Every ounce of everything that is God dwelled in Jesus Christ. He is God. Hebrews 1.3, speaking of Christ, says, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus Christ is the exact, if you want to know what the invisible father looks like, you look at the visible son. They are the exact same, and everything is held together by what Jesus said. He is the creator. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God, and the word was God. He's with God in the beginning. All things were made by him, for him, through him, and it keeps on going on, right? But back in our text, Jesus responds to Philip as we finish up here. And really to all the disciples, says, do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Listen, don't get tripped up in the authority thing. You can have equality, but roles within that. And this is where our culture is just messed up. You can have a husband and a wife who are equal in Christ, and yet the authority lies in the husband. That is the way God set it up. Before God, absolutely equal in value. But roles within that relationship, the Father and the Son are equal, and yet you see the Father has authority, the Son obeys the Father, the Spirit testifies of the Son, and they all glorify one another. They are the one God. Now, if you go, well, that doesn't make sense. That's right, because it's a three-dimensional you know, thing for a two-dimensional person. He's trying to explain himself in a way that we will understand, and one day we hopefully will get a better grasp of that. But Jesus is God. 2 Corinthians 5.19 
says, well, to finish up the verse, Father who dwells in me does his works. What works are those? All the works that you've seen. And Jesus commands them again in verse 11 real quickly, believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me or else believe on the account of the works themselves. The 2 Corinthians 5.19 says, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. All the miracles, all the things, I mean, that was God at work, raising people from the dead, healing people, impossible circumstances, coronavirus, gone. The command of Jesus Christ. Jesus says, believe me, just, not just because of what I said, but look what I did. Let's look at what I've done. Verse 12, believe. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do and greater works than these he will do because I am going to the Father. Listen, church, the ministry of Jesus Christ did not end at his death. That was just the beginning. It was after he ascended and he sent the Holy Spirit and this is where Jesus is headed, by the way, sending the Holy Spirit, that at, this, at that point in Acts 2, the ministry of Jesus did not end. It, be, it began to multiply. Jesus was in one place at one time doing those things, and then the ministry of God was multiplied in his disciples, multiplied in you, and it radically, exponentially happened and, and continues to happen in this world. Now, I don't understand signs and wonders. This is why people say cessationists, but I assume God can do whatever he wants to whoever he wants, whenever he wants, however he wants, because he's God. Amen? I am not a cessationist. I believe the, the gifts of the Holy Spirit are active and they are at work. I think we've got abuse on one end and we've got misunderstanding all over the place, lack of faith, a lot of things going on. But, you know, God can do whatever he wants, however he wants, whenever he wants. And I see here in the New Testament, as you read, he absolutely did that. And may his work of reconciliation, the main work that he's concerned with, not the powers and the demonstration of all these things, but the work of the gospel going forward, the greatest power displayed is the power of a changed life. To take something that is dead and resurrect it, and that is what has happened in you and as you go proclaim the Lord's death until he comes through your life and through your witness and those things, may the world see that in his church and may that power go forward beyond, and he did that, beyond Israel, beyond Samaria, beyond those places to the othermost parts of the earth. We are the spiritual legacy. We are the continuation of that power being displayed as we believe and ask God for his will and his work to be accomplished. Amen. Verse 13, we're almost there. We're going to go to verse 14. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. Oh, underline that one. Amen. Why? That the Father may be glorified in the Son. So whatever Jesus is going to answer is going to be wrapped up in the glory of the Father. Underline that. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Underline that one. Don't you love those verses? Context, church, context. Anything. Who's he talking to? Disciples. Amen? What's the context? The glory of the Father. Ask anything. Another context. In my name. What does that mean? In my name. That we can say, Lord, give me a million dollars in the name of Jesus and it'll be done. Bing. Is that what he's saying? No, you kind of, you know that. 
But there will be those who tell you that Jesus is a cosmic ATM and you just need to, you just need to have enough faith and he's going to heal you. You just need to have, it might very much, very well be that it is, is, is his will that you get coronavirus and you suffer and you die. Because that's what kind of death glorifies him because through that he has a plan that needs to be worked out through your life and your death probably. So I just wanted to lighten the room and the mood. So we pray according to his will, right? What did Jesus pray at the very night here? Your will be done. Your will be done. And that's the prayer of a disciple. That's the prayer in his name. Lord, whatever is according to your character and will glorify your Father and further your plan and all these things, that's in your name. May your name be glorified. May the Father's name be glorified in how I pray and how I ask. Now, real quickly, is everybody a pro in that right now? No, we aren't. And so we, God teaches us how to pray. Lord, teach us to pray. And he often teaches us by making us, by not answering our prayers, thankfully. But as we learn his will and we begin to ask according to his will, he does it. And then you want to ride that wave, church, because it's exciting. Begin to ask according to his will. And if you don't know what his will is, John 15, start reading it. Abide in his word, let his word abide in you, and ask, and I will do it for you. Same thing, he keeps repeating it. That's where powerful prayer comes in. I just wanted to jump across that. I know some of you asked about prayer. We just recorded a podcast on that. We're doing the editing, we'll put it up. But we're to ask in Jesus' name, according to his will, his character, his reputation, in his name. What a promise, amen? I will do it. And if you ask me in anything in my name, I will do it. Church, ask big for the Lord this week. He's not a small God. He's not insignificant. I mean, you see areas. I mean, look at the... the, the the ministry that's around you right now, people are afraid. People are going, yeah, I love you, Lord, but I'm gonna just going to be in a, I'm going to isolate or whatever it might be. Begin praying for people that they would, that, that, that fear of death would be met in the hope of eternal life. Amen? You have the hope. You have the gospel. Begin to pray that God would give you those opportunities. And by the way, pray as you step out in faith towards those opportunities. And just watch God work. Let him use you this week and encourage you. Listen, the world needs hope. Needs hope, true hope, eternal life. And you have it. Don't let your hearts be troubled, church. The Lord's got a plan. And that plan, while he's... Not, he's not away. He sent his Holy Spirit, right? He's there. But it's, it's you guys working through you to go and gather more into that household. And so don't run away from the call. Run into it this week. Pray. Seek the Lord. And I'm asking that, um, obviously, use wisdom and all those things. Wash your hands and good stuff. I've got to put the little quick disclaimer there. But look at, look at verse 15. We're not going to teach on this, don't worry. Right after that, if you love me, you're going to keep my commands. What does he say? 
What's all this, ask anything in my name? He goes, if you love me, you're going to keep my commands. What's the command he gave to the church? That you what? Love one another. If you love Jesus, guess what's going to happen this week? You're going to what? Love one another. You're going to continue to love one another. Amen? Lord God, we just pray. Lord, with all that you've promised, with all that you've said, with all that you've done, with all that you've shown, you've led us into so much, Lord, the the mysteries of God. You've let your church into the, the know of your plans because we are no longer your slaves, so to speak. We're your friends and and you let us into your plan, and in that plan, you, you, you reveal what's going to happen in the age to come. And Lord, while we don't know the exact little details of this week, Lord, we know the marching orders that we would just, we're called to love one another and follow you in faith. And so, Lord, let us be led by the Spirit this week and not by fear. Let us be led to care for one another more deeply while the world retracts. And so, Lord God, lead us and give us wisdom. Have mercy upon those who are sick, Lord. And may you heal them. I pray not only physically, but spiritually, Lord. We just want to lift up our brothers and sisters in China, Lord, who are suffering at this time. Many believers who are quarantined and isolated and perhaps had a building fall on one of their relatives and We lift up them and we ask that their faith would not be shaken and that they would be encouraged in you and they would hold fast and they would press in and continue to love. Show yourself strong in your church, Lord. Strong in our affection for one another and our love for one another and our obedience and our zeal for you. And may your hope be radiating through us that we would have the opportunity to share the hope and the reason for the hope that lies within us. And so, Lord, bless us with your grace this week, Lord, and your presence may it go before us into this world. In the name of Jesus, we pray, amen.